Since our colleague, the late Dr. Li Wenliang, sounded the first alarms of a novel coronavirus last December, COVID-19 has developed into a global pandemic. Not since the flu of 1918 has our society experienced this degree of threat to our health and to our happiness. This is a unique moment in our history, and we here at The Surgery Set are doing what we know how to do, which is to say podcasting, to help. We're telling the stories of this time from the people on the front lines. In these uncertain times, we want you to feel informed. We want you to feel supported. We want to give you the tools to be resilient in the face of what may be the hardest few months of our lives, and we want to remind you, frequently and forcefully, that you are awesome. These are the stories from the front line of this global crisis, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas for how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in social distance. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, this is The Front Lines of COVID, a Surgery Set series. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon trying my best. Welcome. The only kind of medicine I've ever known is academic medicine. Med school, residency, fellowship, my first job, all at major universities with huge hospitals and a very established totem pole of bureaucracies, of which, even after 20 years, I remain pretty much on the bottom. It's the medical world I understand, and living within it, it's easy to forget that most of medicine isn't like this at all. At what we sometimes call outside hospitals, the smaller hospitals that are where care happens in most communities in America, there's a very different model. Hospitals don't necessarily employ their physicians, who may work for other groups or for themselves. Multiple entities may have complex arrangements to share space or resources. And as you'll hear today, getting all those different entities and individuals rowing in the same direction takes skill, talent, and experience. As it happens, those are the three words that best define Dr. Barbara Boyer. Barbara is a second-generation rural surgeon. Her father was the first board-certified surgeon in Wisconsin's Northwoods, and after residency, she joined him in practice. She's now the president of the medical staff at her hospital, as well as president-elect of the Wisconsin Surgical Society, and she offered her insights into how to prepare a community medical center for COVID-19. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us from up north there. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you, and obviously we've known each other for a few years through the Surgical Collaborative of Wisconsin. I'm fascinated to, to get your perspective, both as a surgeon, but as much or more so because you are the president of the medical staff at your hospital. So tell us a little bit about what the COVID preparation process has been like for you with that staff role, that responsibility, not just for surgeons, but for all of the physicians who work there who are from all sorts of different places. Yeah, so I'm president of a, of a small medical staff. We probably have about 75 active medical staff and the medical staff comes together in a what was a community hospital but uh, one of the challenges is that there are some independents for instance we have a couple of independent podiatrists we have some family practice physicians who practice at a, a, a native clinic west of here and then the majority of our of our staff are from the clinic across the street. None of us uh, share a common email, and in the past, how we've communicated with each other was in-person meetings. So we've always, once a month, had an in-person uh, sit-down medical staff meeting in our cafeteria, which is quite well attended, and that's that's how we communicate. So one of the, the challenges of dealing with COVID has been communication. As I say, we don't share a common email, and we can't meet in person. How do you manage that? I mean, 
you presumably are involved in uh, sort of these higher level administrative meetings that we all are experiencing now. How do you take everything that needs to get disseminated to that frontline and, and get that information out there when you don't even have a common email system. Yeah, so um, I, I won't say that I've perfected it yet. Um, some of it, some of it, you know. So there are, have been, as always, a couple of very important secretaries. You know, one at the clinic, and then because I'm president of the hospital, I have my own executive secretary, and so a lot of it is I've relied upon my executive secretary here. And so what I do is I attend the leadership meetings through the. Uh, hospital and the uh, and the medical group that owns the hospital and then I attend the meetings from the clinic and then I invite commentary I've posted you know my email on my door and people are wearing my phone number and people invite them to submit resource documents and comments and then we came up with a common agenda and in the beginning about three weeks ago we had our first phone meeting so we just arranged a phone call in and invited the medical staff to have an a phone ad hoc covid medical staff meeting where we basically went through an agenda which essentially you know included things like physician surge staffing you know supplies future needs and meetings that type of thing and so we heard the concerns and what people were worried about and then a smaller committee of the medical executive committee meets every tuesday and friday on a phone interview with a fixed agenda and we've worked on things like we always talk about our, our our patients under investigation we talk about our positive cases we've come up with order sets as a as a group that's been really challenging because as i say we don't have a common email not everyone has Google Docs or Adobe, and it was very cumbersome. We first came up with our COVID admission orders. That was a real hassle. We kind of adopted them from, you know, Mass General, et cetera. And it, it took us a long time to hand those around and finally agree upon them. And, and I think we've refined it a bit, but we have that meeting every Tuesday and Friday. And then on the side, we set up subcommittees who typically meet by phone like you and I are today. And then we report back. I would imagine you have to give these subcommittees a fair amount of autonomy so that not everyone's having to come back all the time to the larger group, right? You just entrust people. Yes, that's true. And, and so that's an interesting thing because I, I don't know that all of us think so much about, for instance, the birth of an order set. So what's the final answer on an order set? Who, who, who gives the, does it, you circulate it and circulate it and circulate it and, and it's, it's never done. You kind of have to draw the line. So who gets the final answer? So we've tried to stay with our established committees, for instance, like our clinical care committee worked on our order sets. And then we asked them to engage with our frontline hospitalists and our critical care attending to get to give the final answer and then we basically finally just had to say listen we're done we've been working on it for 10 days here they are they're done and it's funny because there really aren't protocols for that like when yeah. do you stop right you the technically in our bylaws our, our medical executive committee doesn't have to uh, approve those right there isn't that that's not has never been the process so we've learned a lot that way and I guess you understand why rules are made because it makes things easier when there's a, a process and a hierarchy what's been the response of, of the physicians at your place to COVID and to the I assume you like us have had to rethink what traditional roles for specialists and generalists are as you face the surge so the response has overwhelmingly been you know helpful and people will do what they can our practice is small and separated so we only have a small group of about five hospitalists and then our internists have ceased they don't even have active hospital privileges anymore and and, and they're in the clinic so one of the things we did is we asked our 
our clinical providers who don't even now, as I say, come to the hospital, who would be willing, for instance, to, and we did the same with the surgeons, who we asked them to rate their, their critical care skills, rate their palliative care skills, rate their general ability to work in an urgent care or the emergency department, and what they'd be willing to do. And, and people responded, and then we uh, focused on developing the skill sets of the groups. So for instance, the people who agreed to go on the front line, like all of the surgeons volunteered to help with the sick ICU patients. We all had the critical care guy a couple weeks ago. We walked around, we troubleshot the ventilator, we pushed all the buttons, and he gave us the protocols. Uh, we as a group then came up with the, vent the COVID vent orders, which included proning protocols. So the subgroup that agreed to do that did that. And then we continue to disseminate, principally through the medical secretary, who has everyone's email, what we think are pertinent articles. For instance, articles on ultrasound diagnosis of, of, of COVID, you know, ultrasound guided venous access, all sorts of safe, you know, PPE protocols for the very sick. And so that's how we've been doing it. It really seems like the trick is get everybody pulling their oars in the same direction. Right. And, and, and it's important to identify leaders and their strengths. So for instance, hmm. trying to appoint, so we have a chief of surgery who's an orthopedic surgeon. We have surgeons from multiple different and sometimes competing medical groups here. And then to get them to accept the mandate of an OR committee that they can't do their elective case, urologists, orthopedic surgeons, and dentists and, you know, everyone has these things, but we're not all one group. And so you have to pick people who you have faith in, who you know are, you know, committed to the cause, who are willing to take it on the chin when they call the urologist and tell him he can't, you know, do all of his lap prostate or robot prostates, right? right? And so you have to identify the leaders and then you have to give them the support they need. Uh, and I think, you know, we've, like I said, our OR committee, we appointed a surgeon, a nurse, and an anesthetist to review all the cases. People have really complied when, when they were advised that we can't, you know, waste the PPE or not waste it, but we can't afford to use it in an elective or semi-elective case now. They were actually, thankfully, very accepting for the better good for not doing those cases. One of the things that strikes me, just coming from a, you know, a place where there is a very established hierarchy and leadership structure is, you know, your, your hospital is probably more reflective of, of the real world than mine by a long stretch, right? It, it has a very decentralized, and, and I think a lot, so much of healthcare I'm starting to realize is is so decentralized around decision making and you know there are independent practitioners sort of working in these systems or competing systems working in the same space it seems like yeah it basically takes a pandemic to get everybody on the same page but people are on the same page you know what I'll say about that? So I think some of that is the leadership process. So no, we don't have a dean. I always hear these big places talk about how scared they are. The dean, we don't have a dean. We don't have a dean here. Our dean is great. No. Awesome. Sometimes listens so, to the podcast. Nice to see you, sir. Yeah. Okay. So here we don't have that, but it's, it's, it's interesting because we were supposed to have elections. So we were supposed to have medical staff elections. They were supposed to occur on the 30th of April, at which time the president of the medical staff, which is who I am, would have moved on to president-elect. And I, I'm not trying to bore you with this, but it's important to understand the structure. So I was, I was president-elect for two years, and then now I'm president, and then I'll be past president. And much like, you know, Wisconsin Surgical, when you sit around the table, you have those people uh, sitting there, you know, behind you. People, as much as there aren't firm rules or, or penalties or anything for following the leadership structure, there is a structure. And it, it's based upon service 
and relationships that we have and the fact that they know how hard it is to run a hospital and that and that and they 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 generally really do fall in line and have the best interest of our community hospital in mind you know they we shockingly it is a loose structure and that you probably couldn't draw it out with some sort of algorithm but the relationships are well established and the the we work as a team it's a small team and so we know each other's strengths and weaknesses and i think that's really um, in our favor and why we put off elections so we put off elections to keep our present leadership team in place that season before electing a whole new group for two years and sometimes i'd rather just prefer to be a surgeon honestly i wish i were lame duck right now. I wouldn't be in these meetings all day. Well, let's talk about that too, because you are a, a, a general surgeon. And when we were first talking about setting up this interview, you sent me a list of the cases you had done that day as someone who is doing what I think everyone is doing, just sort of emergencies only, but, but you're doing a lot of surgery. What's your perspective as a rural surgeon, as the president of the Wisconsin Surgical Society as well, on the role that surgeons play in the pandemic? Because I think sometimes we're quick to say, well, this is a, it's a medical pandemic, right? And it's like, there's no operation for COVID. But I do think that there is a role that surgeons have from, by virtue of our training to, to be useful in these situations. No, I think that's true. And so first I'll say, you know, that I'm president-elect of Wisconsin Surgical, not president yet. I'm Brian Lewis. <laughs> anyway, so, but yeah, that's interesting. So I, I sent you that list of cases. So what we did here, first of all, I'll say, we normally would have four general surgeons working here. And what the, and I'm sure you've heard this from everyone, but what we decided to do about three weeks ago is that we would all, we would only have, we would really truly only do emergencies that came through our ER and that that person at the hospital would, instead of taking a day at a time alternating, would take the whole week. So those cases that I sent you for that week were not, those would have been the conglomerate of cases from my entire group. And, and it's funny how your perspective on emergency changes, you know, what, it, you know, if you look in Washington, at first they start, they did limb threatening ischemia, or they did claudication, and then they're like, oh, just limb threatening ischemia. And then all of a sudden they're just doing ruptured aneurysms, right? Yeah. So your perspective on what's an emergency changes, and and we're, we haven't sort of exactly reached that point. But anyway, I was sort of telling you the cases from the whole group. So we, we kept one person at the hospital so other people weren't wandering in and out of the place where the where the covid people would present we we put one person strictly to do any you know positive colocardial diagnostic endoscopy one person do outreach and the other one does all the telehealth kind of follow up that's how we divided our group of four with support of our pas surgeon wise i think surgeons are uniquely positioned yes we're not we're not internists and we're not hospitalists but we all through our training took care of critically ill ventilated patients and surgeons are hands on so we all ran the buttons on the ventilator and so that's what my, my group did. My group all stepped forward, all four of the general surgeons, and in fact, our urologist stepped forward to learn how to run our vents and uh, with the critical care staff. And we will be on the front line with critical care support should we be asked to do that. We're also working with our hospitals and internal medicine partners. We established order sets and things, as I said said. And we still, as surgeons, have to continue to take care of the non-COVID emergencies. So we have, I think, a couple groups. We can do critical care. These people need lines. They need dialysis lines. They need arterial lines. They need central lines. They need trachs in some cases. And we're standing by to help with that. And then we're also, honestly, 
you know, going to do the, the appies and the coleys that we've, that we've always done. And I think we're good at triage as well. And I don't mean to go on and on, but we are also, surgeons are nat natural triage, natural at triage. We make decisions with very little information and are comfortable with it. Yeah. And we're taught that throughout our, our training, for instance, with ATLS. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a valuable point. I mean, you're like obviously like a poster child for for surgery and, and and excellent surgeons but to sort of be reminded that just because there's not an operation for COVID doesn't mean that we don't have something to to offer in this situation you know just that that experience making decisions and 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 that those years in ICUs as surgical residents right and I think about my burn experience I did two years in the burn unit and what I learned about whatever proning and, you know, reversing I to E and, you know, all that kind of stuff serves me now. It's been a long time ago, but I feel like I can at least with some critical care help fill in and help. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so great. Thank you. Always thank a pleasure you, to catch up and um, yeah. hopefully we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Keep safe up there. I will. You too. Thanks to Barbara Boyer. Talking to her reminded me of Thomas Paine who wrote just before Christmas in 1776, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. These are times that try our souls, which is a good reason to find reasons to celebrate wherever we can. John Krasinski, you might remember him as Jim on The Office, has been stuck at home like the rest of us and has made some remarkable videos about good news to be found in the time of COVID. We'll link to them in the show notes. Here's a poem about putting in the work called To Be of Use by Marge Piercy. The people I love the best jump into work headfirst, without dallying in the shadows, and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves, an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire must be put out. The work of this world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies, clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine or oil, Hopi vases that held corn are put in museums, but you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. If you have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at J-E Kohler, that's K-O-H-L-E-R. 
You can also send me an email at kohler at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass.